0: So, uh, three, uh, three sort of lessons to learn this morning from this passage, three things to uh, take on board. Remember that um, the last uh, couple of weeks as we were going through Luke, we've had this uh, uh, wonderful occasion with Peter, James and John up on the mountain with Jesus. They see Jesus in all of his glory. And then last Sunday we were uh, coming back down to earth with a bump and the disciples struggling to... Uh, cast out this uh, demon. And now here we are with the disciples getting into an argument. An argument about which of them is going to be the greatest. And we realise that despite the fact that Jesus has tried to explain to them how this thing is going and where he is going to end up, they still don't get it. Uh, remember, Jesus has twice explained to them, back in uh, verses uh, verse 22... Chapter 9, he says, the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the eldest chief priests and teachers of the law, and must be killed, and then on the third day be raised to life. And we were thinking when we studied that passage about how that is the normal Christian life. That should be our expectation of the normal Christian life in this world, is that it is a path of re- suffering and rejection and death before resurrection, Somebody once said that the Christian life is not a gravy train, it's a train to the grave. That's the direction of travel. Jesus has tried to explain that. But all that they've got fixed in their minds and what they can't quite get away from is this idea of Jesus, the kingly Messiah. Jesus, the one who's going to be like King David in the Old Testament, the one who's going to liberate Israel, get rid of the Romans and establish Israel as a newly independent nation, and they want to be in his first cabinet, and so they're having an argument among themselves about which of them is going to be the greatest. They just haven't got it. The direction of travel is not that you start at the bottom and work your way up. That's how the world works. You know, that's our kind of expectation in this world, is that you, you know, you look for promotion. If you have a job, you're hoping that you will get promotion. You may start at the bottom, but you hope that you will work your way up. That's the way that it works. That's our expectation. I remember many years ago starting work in the kitchen of a, a student's hostel in London. I knew nothing about cooking or working in a kitchen. And there was this, you kind of worked your way up through grades in the kitchen. You started with washing up in one of those sinks. I don't know what it is about sinks in commercial kitchens that are set at a level that to do the washing up, you have to stoop. And you just end up with permanent, but why are they not just lifted a bit high? So that was where I started, with washing up. And then you progressed to cutting onions. That seemed to be the next next level you were allowed to cut onions. And then if you could successfully cut an onion, I think it was because that was a horrible job and it made you cry, Uh, then you could kind of progress onto other things. But that's the way the world works. You start at the bottom and you work your way up. The kingdom of God flips the things of the world on their head. You don't start at the bottom and work your way up. You start at the top and you work your way down. One of my favourite passages from Paul's letter that I often read, Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, he was at the top. You don't get much higher than that. Did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's the direction of travel that Jesus takes. He starts at the top and he works his way down. That should be our ambition As followers of Jesus Christ is, well, how can we serve? Paul often begins his letters by introducing himself as a slave of Christ, a servant of Christ. Because in the kingdom of God, it's when you become a slave that you find freedom. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and made him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. This is this is so extraordinary. This is so radical. This is so completely mind blowing. We read this passage and we, and we just kind of skip over it. We the impact it doesn't make the impact on us that it should because because we live in an age, we live in a society where children are treasured, where children are valued, where we put in place. Every protection that we can for children because we believe them to be so precious and so valuable. 2,000 years ago, children were not precious and valuable. Children almost didn't exist. The reason that we think today children are so valuable and precious is because of the teaching of Jesus. Because of things that Jesus said that completely changed The way people thought about children. But 2,000 years ago, children were were virtually disposable. If If you had a child, if you had a baby, that you could either not afford to keep or you did not want to keep, you would put them on the rubbish heap. That's what you did with children that you couldn't afford to keep or didn't want to keep. You would literally put them on the rubbish heap. And if You were very fortunate. And if they were very fortunate, someone would find them and take them in. But if not, they would just be left to die. That was the value of children 2,000 years ago. So for Jesus to take a child and stand next to a little child and say, whoever welcomes this little child in my name, welcomes me, is mind-blowing. Because this little child stood next to Jesus counts for nothing. There are nobody. They don't have any value in society. And yet, Jesus says, I'm like this little child. They are like me. He's saying almost, I'm I'm a nobody. And even more extraordinary, he says, whoever welcomes me like a child welcomes the one who sent me. Welcomes almighty God. This is one of the things that, that constantly blows my mind is that the creator... Of all things, the creator of the universe makes himself subject to his own creation. This Jesus, the image of the invisible God, God in all his fullness in human form, this Jesus is beginning a journey to Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be nailed to a cross by other human beings. Does that not speak of the incredible... Grace and mercy and humility of God. That the creator makes himself subject to his own creation. In order to redeem and restore and rescue his own creation. It's the most extraordinary thing. And Jesus says, don't aim for the top. Aim for the bottom. If you want to be the greatest... Then be the greatest servant. Don't argue about who's going to have the top position. Maybe have an argument about who's going to serve the most. You want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Well, it will be the least amongst you who is the greatest. So that's the first lesson. Don't aim for the top. Aim for the bottom. Verse 49. Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name... And we try to stop him because he's not one of us. Don't stop him, Jesus said. For whoever is not against you is for you. History of the church would look very different if the people of God had taken this seriously. Uh, Whoever is not against you is for you. This is uh, this is so important. Again, it's one of these. It's just such a brief thing, but it's so. Significant is so important that we take it on board. So often the church divides and the church splits because, oh, well, you're you're not like us. You're not doing it the way that we're doing it. Uh, Jesus says, um, you know, uh, John says, we saw somebody driving out demons in your name. Remember I was saying last week, um, when we do things in the name of Jesus, it's not just that we tack those words on the end of a sentence. And that's what makes it in Jesus' name. The fact that we say something and then at the end we say, in Jesus' name, Amen. That doesn't make it in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name means inhabiting his character. It means living his life. It means allowing his life to flow in us and through us so that we sound like Jesus and we look like Jesus. That's the goal of the Christian life, to become Christ-like. We do it in his name. If someone's doing something in Jesus' name, just because they may not be one of us, they're not doing it quite like us, doesn't mean we build a wall. Uh, When I I did my second curacy in um, Chesley Street, just north of Durham. And uh, uh, there was a a Church of England church in the middle. It was a town, it's about the size of Hayward's Heath. Anglican church in the middle. At the top of the town, the middle of the town and the bottom of the town were three Methodist churches. Uh, One of the Methodist churches had been sold to the Elim, so they were in it. And then literally next door to the Anglican Church over the road was the Salvation Army. And literally next door to the Salvation Army was the United Reformed Church. And then just down the road was the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, in living memory, all the Christians who went to those different churches had nothing to do with each other. And looked down on each other. Because, well, you're not doing it like we're doing it. You're not one of us. So we're going to do it our way. And, well, if you want to do it your way, that's okay. No, that's not okay because unity is essential for the proclamation of the gospel. It's not just an optional extra. It's not just something nice to do. It's actually essential. If we want people to know about the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can't look down our noses at other Christians who are doing things slightly differently. Let me read, um... Psalm 133, the psalmist says this. How good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured down on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing even life forevermore. God bestows his blessing on brothers and sisters who live together in unity. Do we want God to bless us? Do we want God to bless our village? Do we want God to bless our nation and our world? Well, if we do, then unity is not an optional extra. It's essential Uh, Jesus says in in John chapter 17, where he's praying for us, praying for those who will come as a result of the disciples' witness. He says, my prayer is that those who believe in me through the message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you're in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I want people to believe that Jesus has come into the world because God sent him. Jesus says if we want that to be known, if we want that to be true, then unity is not an option extra. I, um, I popped down to the other end of the village. We have uh, a new vicar arrived in Bolney. Uh, it was not quite the new vicar because he's not licensed till the 13th, but he's moved in, they've moved into the house. Uh, moved in on Friday, I popped down to see them. I just—I uh, was going to pop a card through the door, and they were there. So I said hello, and um, literally, when I introduced myself, the first thing that he said was, "Do the churches work together?" I could have cried. <laughs> I could have cried. I said yes, and we want to. And literally, I could have cried because. You know, particularly this—you know—small community as we are—to have two worshiping communities that are not working together is is bonkers. That's a theological term. (laughs) So I've, I, you know, and that's what we've prayed for. You know, we prayed that we, you know, God would send someone with that heart. And uh, so, yeah, unity, unity. Uh, We need to work together for the sake of the gospel. Uh, So, third thing: as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. I know I've said this um, so many times, but it's worth noting: Uh, we're barely, we're about a third of the way through the gospel, and Jesus is now on his final journey to Jerusalem because that's what he's that's what he's aiming for. He's aiming for the cross. It's not a mistake. Uh, it didn't happen by accident. It was part of the plan. And from this moment on, the rest of the gospel, Jesus is heading for Jerusalem. Resolutely, another translation says Jesus set his face for Jerusalem. Uh, it's like you, you know you've got to do it, but actually you're not looking forward to it. He set his face for Jerusalem. He knows he's going to die and he knows it's going to be horrible. But he does it because he loves us. He sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. I don't know whether Jesus does this deliberately. It can't possibly be that he's naive. But you're not going to get a warm welcome in Samaria if you're heading for Jerusalem and if you're a Jew. Because Jews and Samaritans hate each other. They don't speak to each other. They avoid each other. Uh, you know, if you're going a journey north to south and you're a Jew in Israel, you, you go the long way around to avoid Samaria. So if you're a Jew travelling traveling through Samaria on your way to Jerusalem, uh, it's not likely that people are going to give you a warm welcome. So unsurprisingly, they don't get a warm welcome uh, because they're heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked... Lord do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them because that's what Elijah did in the old testament and that was cool Jesus turned and rebuked them and they went to another village Jesus rebuked them and went to another village because the heart of God is not to bring judgment on his enemies the heart of the God is heart of God is not to smite people off the face of the earth because they don't give his people a warm welcome. Now I know that you all have had moments in your lives when you wished that that was what God did do. And I bet there are people that you have come across who've wound you up and you've had that little naughty thought you have just thought, go on Lord, get them. Just do it. Because that's what I would do. But fortunately, God is not like us. That's not what he does. Which is why Jesus rebukes them. Because the heart of God is for salvation. The heart of God is for rescue. Let me just read from Exodus. This is Exodus chapter 34, where God introduces himself to Moses. And God describes his character to Moses. And this is what God says he says he is the Lord the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness rebellion and sin that's the character of God compassionate gracious Slow triangle. We were talking about this the other Sunday. Abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands. Forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Uh, it goes on yes, he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. There is judgment coming. That's why Paul writes about the wrath of God being revealed. God's judgment is coming. Why? Because, like us, God hates evil. He doesn't want evil as part of his creation. He wants to get rid of evil and he's going to get rid of evil. God's judgment is coming. He will judge and why does he judge? Because he loves and if you love then you care. Judgment is coming but God kind of delays the day of judgment as long as possible. That's why we live in the messy world that we do. Not because God doesn't care but because God wants to give us much time as possible for us to repent and to turn back to him. Uh, Peter writes in his second letter to Peter, uh, chapter 3, verse 9, because people are wondering, well, why doesn't, why doesn't God bring judgment now? Why doesn't Jesus come back now? Wouldn't it be so much better if Jesus returned now and ushered in his kingdom and put everything right that is wrong with the world, Our world is in, you know, 2,000 years ago, people are saying our world is in such a mess. There's so much injustice. There's so much sickness. There's so much wrong with the world. Why doesn't Jesus come back and sort it out now? They were saying that 2,000 years ago, let alone now. Paul says this, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. He's not slow, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's the heart of God. That's why He waits, because He's patient. He doesn't want anyone to perish, He wants everyone to come to repentance. God holds the door open for us as long as He possibly can. A day will come when it will be too late, because a judgment is coming. The wrath of God, God's settled view towards evil and injustice, which cannot be changed, is coming. But he gives us every opportunity that he can to respond, to return to him. Remember, um, at the start of the service, I was reading some verses from Romans where, Paul says, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, but in Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ, we can share in the righteousness of Christ and have eternal life and live forever. God longs for every one of us to respond to his invitation. But because he loves us and wants relationship with us, he doesn't push us through the door. He doesn't force us. He invites us. And that's why Jesus rebukes his disciples for wanting to call fire down on heaven, on this village. Because God loves the inhabitants of this village. And God is longing that they may come to repentance. And who knows that they did come to repentance in the years after. So three things for us to take on board this morning. Number one. In the kingdom of God, don't aim for the top. Aim for the bottom. Aim for service. Aim to be the greatest servant of all. And number two, unity. Unity with those who are acting in Jesus' name. Whatever brand they may have above the door, if they're doing things in the name of Jesus, let's work together and be united because then God will bless us. And let's have the heart of God for the lost. Let's have the heart of God for those who may be against us. Let us love everyone. Let us extend the grace and the mercy of God to everyone. No matter how unwilling they may be to receive it. Let that be our heart. And let that be our prayer. So let's take... Let's take a few moments. We're going to just have a time of, just an opportunity to respond in prayer this morning. Just be an open time of prayer. You can pray, pray aloud, pray in the quietness of your heart.